This morning, with the Lord's help, we will be concluding our study of this major section of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians we've been looking at, stretching from the beginning of chapter 12 now to the end of chapter 14, as we see Paul's final instructions for the use of the Spirit's gift among the gathered body. You can find that, and I invite you to, to turn with me in 1 Corinthians to chapter 14. We're going to be reading and studying today verses 26 to the end in verse 40. You can find that on page 960 of our cart Bibles. 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 26. Before we read God's word together, let us go again to his throne of grace and ask his blessing upon our study. Let's pray. O Lord God of wisdom and grace, thank you that you have inspired holy men of old, carried them along by your spirit as they wrote down your words. And so we pray now that you would make us those who listen and hear, that you would speak for your servants are listening and you would speak words of truth to us. Help us to rejoice in Jesus Christ, our Savior, and to be better worshipers of you as you work by your spirit in us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26 through 40. Hear now the word of the Lord. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most, three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, excuse me, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn... Let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May indeed add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. If you have spent any time at all thinking about formal education, at really any level, uh, from kindergarten on to graduate school, Sunday school, home school, uh, anything really, You've probably spent some time thinking about the role that different teaching styles have in the way that different people learn. 
It's a hot topic in introductory education courses. The idea is that if you want to be a good teacher, you've got to know whether the students you're teaching are primarily visual learners, maybe auditory learners. Maybe they learn best by doing or by writing. Uh, there are competing theories about how all this works. Some of these theories list maybe three basic learning styles, some as many as seven, but regardless of the number, the theories all share the same basic premise. The idea that the optimal educational attainment can only be reached when the right approach is applied in the right measure to the right students in the right order. Education, it seems, is a highly individualized endeavor. I'm no expert at educational theories. Maybe some of you agree with some of this stuff. Maybe you think it's all hooey. Uh, but regardless, this is one of the predominant theories uh, that speaks about the way people learn. Uh, that, uh, that knowledge makes the most progress when the personality of the individual is driving the agenda. It seems that in a spiritual way, that was also the predominant view in Corinth of the way that the people ought to be worshiping. You know, what with all the variety of the people in the congregation, all the many ways the Holy Spirit was working in them, in different ways, it seems that the Corinthians had gotten this idea that worship works best when everybody is allowed to do their own thing. And sometimes, it seems, maybe even doing their own thing all at the same time. And Paul is writing to combat this idea, uh, this really sort of chaotic form of worship that it seems was happening in Corinth. And he's giving us his final instructions for the spiritual gifts, for what it looks like for the Spirit to be moving and working in God's gathered people as they worship. We've seen several layers already that Paul has taught us about what it means to live by the Spirit and to worship by the Spirit. We've seen that worship is something that is begun and sustained by the Spirit's gifting. We've seen that all of these gifts that are given to the church ought to be directed by love, one believer for another. We've seen that as the church gathers together, our ultimate focus ought to be the glory of the Lord and the edification of Christ's body, that we should grow up into maturity, into edification. Well, today we're going to see that worship flourishes, not when the church follows a personality-based approach, but when we give ourselves to the structure and the authority that the Lord has instituted. You see the bookends around our passage today in verse 26. Let all things be done for building up. We've seen this already several times in the previous weeks. But then again at the end, all things should be done decently and in order. These are not competing claims. We're not supposed to choose one or the other, edification or good order. Rather, one feeds into the other. The all things of verse 26 are the same, all things of verse 40. And so good order is what nourishes this body as it grows. Good order is important for true worship. And true worship grows best out of good order. Now, there are a few kinds of order that Paul draws our attention to in these verses. And each one, in turn, helps worship in some way. It's a benefit when the people gather together to follow this good, ordered scheme that he gives us. The majority of this passage, really just over half of it, beginning in verse 26 and running to the end of verse 33, or at least halfway through verse 33, presses upon us that true worship calls for well-ordered gifts. That's the first order we need to have in good worship, well-ordered gifts. Now, if you're the analytical type, 
as we have been reading through these verses today, beginning in verse 26, you may notice that there is a slightly different focus than the kinds of verses that have come before in the rest of this chapter. Earlier, Paul wanted to, to get us a general view of how we ought to think about gifts or, or these uh, marvelous gifts of tongues and prophecy especially, and he wanted us to, to think well about them, and he wanted, to us, wanted us to approach them with a, a good general frame of reference, but now he switches to give us almost step-by-step instructions. We saw before we're supposed to pursue love, we're supposed to strive to excel and Building up the church, we're supposed to mature and not be as children. And that's a pretty general view, but now we see all of these let commands. Did you notice all of those? Beginning in verse 27, speaking of tongues, what should we do? Well, let there be one or two, or or at the most, three. Let someone interpret. And if there is no one to interpret, well, let them be silent. Let them speak to the Lord and to themselves. The same thing with prophecy. He seems to be giving step-by-step instructions, very specific instructions on the order that ought to happen in worship. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh what is said. If a prophecy happens while you're all gathered together, let that first person give way to the second. There's good order here. These verses are peppered with imperatives, commands. These are restrictions, really. Restrictions on how and when how often these gifts ought to show up in worship. And that really is what order is all about. Good order in worship and in many other endeavors is about putting boundaries in their proper places. Having some things fit in one category and maybe not in another. In fact, down in verse 40, that word for order that we see, the Greek word is taxis, which doesn't help you a whole lot unless you understand that that's the word from which we get our word taxonomy. You've done some taxonomy. Think back to that worksheet you had in your junior high biology class. And there's a wolf and a whale and a frog and a fish, and you've got to fit them into their different categories, and kingdom and phylum and class and on down to species and all the rest that goes in between it. It's taxonomy. It's, it's putting restrictions and putting things in their proper place. Well, that's the order Paul's calling for in the life of the church. We need to recognize that even in the most marvelous and wonderful gifts that the Spirit gives, there ought to be boundaries. There ought to be sometimes restrictions and good order in the way these things are exercised. Now that's pretty helpful for us to to combat against a few misunderstandings we sometimes have in the church about the way that the Holy Spirit works. One misunderstanding is that the gifts of the Spirit simply cannot be restricted. We think of the gifts of the Spirit almost, especially in in terms of tongues and prophecy, as as a rising floodwater that no one can hold back. Those two uh, gifts especially sometimes get uh, thought of as almost like a trance, that the Holy Spirit fills his people and gifts his people and takes over, and they lose control and might not know or be able to control what they're speaking. But that's not the picture that Paul gives us at all. The gifts are able to be restricted, and in fact, he says you should restrict them. He says, uh, of tongues, if there's no one to interpret, let them be silent. That implies a little bit of forethought, doesn't it? The kind of thing, the assessment that you do before you ever begin to open your mouth, you look around the congregation, at least in Corinth at the time that these gifts were active, you look around the congregation and say, is there someone else with the known gift of interpretation? And if not, now is not the time for this gift that I've got. The same thing uh, with prophecy. 
It gives us this situation. What if one prophet has come and they're delivering this prophecy that they've received and all of a sudden a new revelation is made to another one who wasn't speaking but the spirit is moving? Well, you don't go on doing some sort of a spiritual filibuster. You stop. You allow the other person to take the floor and you wait in silence. And Paul says you can do that. These spiritual gifts can be restricted. That's the point. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. That's one misunderstanding that we have about the spirits working. We think, well, they can't be restricted. Well, no, Paul says they can. The second misunderstanding is that even if these gifts can be restricted, they ought not to be restricted. That's the critique that's sometimes leveled against the kind of worship that we have in Reformed churches like ours. We come into worship and everything is planned before we ever get started. It's all printed and predetermined and you've got this nice little booklet that you can follow along with and we reuse some of the same prayers. We stand when we're told to stand. We sing when we're told to sing and the pastor stands here and you all absorb and it's all nice and tidy and it's good, right? But where's the freedom in that, some might say? Where is there room for the Spirit to move and convict and comfort? What if the Spirit wants us to take another offering? What if the Spirit wants us to sing a few more songs or to invite someone else to come and and help with the preaching? And doesn't that all amount to so much quenching the Spirit? And so the misunderstanding is that these things ought never to be restricted. And Paul, I think, would say no. No, There are times... Uh, when gifts should be restricted, and and for a few important reasons. For one, it is really only ever well-ordered gifts that reach their fullest potential. That's been the point all along with tongues, hasn't it? Sure, you can use your tongue, but if it doesn't show up in the right context and with the right order and with the right interpretation, if it doesn't edify and instruct, it fails to do what it was meant to do. It may be a sign of judgment, as we saw last time, But it is not instructive, and it doesn't build up the body. It's a sort of halfway gift. And so if it's not well-ordered, if it's not restricted and put in its proper place, it fails to do what it ought to do. The same thing with prophecy, really. What was the prophet supposed to do? Well, he wasn't supposed to make himself appear impressive, to turn all the eyes in the congregation on him. The role of the prophet was to clearly reveal God's will and God's authority. And if God was moving in the congregation and the prophet refused to yield, they're not really drawing attention to God's authority at all, are they? And it's a halfway gift. You see, sometimes these gifts need to be restricted in order to meet their fullest potential. The same is true of the other gifts that are still in operation, by the way. We don't need to look at this and try and and search too hard and, and figure out, well, there are other places and times in the service or maybe throughout the week that God's people can use their gifts where they might be otherwise inappropriate or or a way that we can uh, use and exercise these gifts to their fullest potential. Think about the spiritual gift of leadership. Leadership works best in a congregation, in a setting, where those who lead have been recognized by the whole body. That means, yes, your elders, yes, your deacons, yes, your pastor. It also means your Sunday school teacher. It also means the chair people of our committees. It also means our women's ministry coordinators. So that we are setting aside some people and saying, the Lord is gifting this person. And if you have issues or you have questions, go to them. 
and their gift is nurtured, and the whole body is built up. There's order and structure, and that's a gift that we still have. It's leadership, and, and we need to order and restrict it in some sense. The same is true with service. Service is, uh, works best in the congregation when everybody shares the load. So it's a good thing that we have a sign-up sheet and rotation so that the same family isn't setting up the same chairs every week and every month and every year so that everyone gets to share together and we're all encouraged together. The same is true of faith. Our faith is encouraged when the whole church knows what we're praying for. And it might seem a little stale sometimes to print these things in the bulletin ahead of time and not have someone stand and share their heart. But here's something you can take home with you. You can exercise that gift of faith throughout the week, and you can pray for brothers and sisters in Algeria. You can pray for David and Carrie Joe, and there's some structure here, and that's a good thing. You see, good order helps our gifts to reach their fullest potential, but I think more importantly, well-ordered gifts are those that best reflect the character of the God that we worship. There's a theological backbone to everything that Paul was teaching here. Worship isn't just about efficiency. It's not just about impressiveness. He, he says that worship is about knowing and rejoicing in the Lord whom we serve. Verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. We serve a God of order. It was the Lord at the beginning of creation whose spirit was hovering over the waters as they were formless and without void. Or with void, rather. It was the Holy Spirit, God working through His Spirit and through His Son to lay the foundations of the earth in wisdom, to set the stars in their courses, to appoint times and seasons and weeks and years and purpose and order. The Lord is the God who brings order out of chaos. He's the God who, when we brought sin into the world and, and broke our lives into a million fragmented pieces by our sin, sent His Son to bring order out of even that the one who brings redemption out of sin, the one who brings hope and healing out of heartache. And so when we come together week after week in good order and edification and decency and all those sorts of things, it's not just a cultural idea. It's not just about personal preference. We're trying to, to show one another in good order and in decency the character of the God that we worship, that we would see and savor something of the Lord who orders all things well for his own ends. And so for the good of the body, especially for the glory of the Lord, true worship calls for well-ordered gifts. It's the first thing we see. Secondly, true worship calls for well-ordered roles. We see this in verses 34 and 35. And I'm going to tell you something about these two verses that you already know. That is that they are controversial. These verses are not controversial because they are unclear. In fact, just the opposite. They are so clear that they are distasteful to contemporary ears. We do not like to hear things like this in our contemporary sensitive culture. Ideas of gender roles when the whole concept of gender is currently being thrown out the window itself. And yet to have the audacity to say that not only is gender real, the gender roles are real, and they have something to do with the order of worship. It is distasteful in our culture to speak like this. And so there are many people, in fact, there are even many Christians 
look at this and say, well, here's another example of that latent chauvinism in Paul's ministry. And here's something that we don't have to listen to. And some people will take a more Thomas Jefferson approach to it. Metaphorically or, or literally, they'll take their scissors in hand and say, Paul probably didn't write these things, so you don't need to worry about them. Or they'll just try to downplay it and say, well, it, it seems like he's saying this, yes, but he's, he really means something completely different. There are a couple arguments that are put forward. And I, let me stop here. I really don't want to rehash all of this because we looked at some of this already when we preached through uh, 1 Corinthians 11. If you're one of those folks who wasn't with us uh, back in the spring when we went through that, you can find those sermons online. And, and there was uh, a two-part series we went through dealing with head coverings where we talked about a lot of this. But this text is in front of us, and so we need to work through some of it. So there are a few arguments that people use to say that we don't really need to listen to these two verses here, two and a half verses, I suppose. One is that they say, they claim that these two verses interrupt the flow of Paul's argument. Here he is talking about spiritual gifts. All of a sudden, what is he doing talking about women in their roles in worship? And, and what do they have to do with that? So that's one argument, that it simply interrupts what Paul is trying to tell us. And so it, it probably doesn't belong there at all. The second argument, they claim that this is another one of those culturally conditioned arguments. Paul is really just asking the Corinthians to do what is appropriate in their culture. But, you know, our culture is so much different than the first century Roman world, and so we can do away with this because it's just on the surface. The third one, and I think this is the strongest argument, is that this is really an overly restrictive view of who ought to be involved in worship, especially because in chapter 11, Paul said that it seems to be okay that women can pray or prophesy in worship just so long as they have their heads covered. That's the claim, at least. But once we start to examine these things, they don't really hold up at all. The first argument was that this is an interruption, but these verses are exactly where they ought to be. We're looking at this smaller section between chapters 12 and 14 dealing with spiritual gifts, but there is a little bit larger section in the, uh, in the letter that we need to consider where in the beginning of chapter 11, Paul starts... From the beginning of chapter 11 to the end of chapter 14, he's dealing with issues of worship in one way or another. Head coverings or the Lord's table or spiritual gifts. And so it's actually pretty rhetorically powerful that he comes back to the same place that he ended. He ends talking about women and he circles around and he says, look, I'm going to give you the same thing. Let's rehash what we've been talking about. And let's go all the way back to the beginning. And yes, this actually makes sense. So these verses are right where they ought to be. Second, these verses actually repeat the exact same arguments from chapter 11. You can see the way that he breaks it down, and it goes through a certain structure here. Paul calls the women in the church to submit. See that in uh, verse 34? The women should keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak. And then he cites an Old Testament uh, precedent for this. He doesn't give us a verse or a quote, which in itself is interesting. But he cites the Old Testament. He says they should be in submission as the law also says. Then he does argue that to do otherwise for the women not to submit in worship would be shameful. There's the cultural argument. It's actually the same word that showed up back in chapter 11, dealing with head coverings, and it is translated a little bit differently there. 
But then there's this other argument that this is the universal position of the Christian churches. So you got those four pieces there. Calls them to submit, cites the Old Testament, says this is a cultural thing, yes, but he also says this is the universal practice of the churches. Flip back with me to chapter 11. We're going to begin reading in verse 6. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful, that is, uh, shameful, same word, since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And then look down at verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. You see all those same four elements there, don't you? Call to submit this claim that, yes, it would be culturally shameful, but also this appeal to the Old Testament. Here he's not quoting, but he's simply rehashing the creation account. And then he says this is the universal practice of the churches. So what does that tell us? It says, yes, Paul is being culturally sensitive here, but that's not all he's doing. He is grounding this in a much larger, much more foundational creation mandate, a pre-fall mandate. He seems to be alluding to Genesis chapter 2, not Genesis chapter 3, where man and woman are together and woman is made for man. That's what he quoted back in chapter 11. And so this means that, uh, that we can't simply cast this aside if it doesn't fit what we like to hear. Not the kind of thing that we can simply say, oh, that's cultural, you don't need to worry about it. So that's the second argument. And then this last one, that this is a, an overly restrictive view. Well, we need to know that in chapter 14, that there's a context for these, uh, these instructions that Paul is giving. He tells the women in the church to submit. And the particular context is that of evaluating what has been said by the prophets. It is evaluation of the revealed will and word of God. In chapter 11, he was dealing with prophecy itself. Now, that might seem like a hair to split between these two. But we know that very often in Scripture, there are prophetesses. It happens. There's Huldah, there's Anna, there are the four daughters uh, of Agabus in the New Testament and Acts. It seems to say that the prophet Joel uh, prophesied and was quoted uh, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost that the Lord would send out his spirit on men and women. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. But we've also seen in the last few chapters that prophecy is something partial and temporary. But the regular ongoing ministry of the church is evaluating the revealed word of God. That's what we're doing right now. The Lord has spoken. We're reading his word. We're applying it to our lives and trying to see how it fits with how we ought to worship. That is the normal ongoing ministry of the church. So it seems to be that Paul is laying ground rules for what the church ought to look like going forward. A permanent and unbreakable command. And this fits perfectly with the rest of the New Testament witness about roles of men and women in leadership and teaching in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. 
I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Do you hear the verbal parallels there? Not teaching, learning, and quietness and submissiveness. This seems to be the exact same thing that Paul is telling the Corinthians. So all of this to say that even if these are controversial verses, folks, these are verses that belong here. These are verses that are saying what they seem to be saying, that roles of teaching and authority in the church ought to be given to men. Now, the question is, what does that have to do with advancing the worship of Christ's body? How does that help worship rather than hindering? If the Lord gives gifts by his Spirit to all kinds of people, men and women, young and old, how do we advance our worship by saying, well, only some can exercise gifts and others ought not to exercise gifts? Well, we need to know that submission to God's authority is itself a vital part of true worship. Yes. It is the women in this passage who are being called to submission and specifically to submit to the authority and the teaching of men in the church. But search the scriptures and you will find other examples of men and women, believers together, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's in Ephesians. Search the scriptures and you'll find examples of the whole church submitting to Christ. You'll find examples of Christians submitting to governing authorities as part of their spiritual worship in Romans 12 through 14. You'll find creation itself submitting to the Lord. Perhaps most significantly, you'll find the Lord Jesus himself submitting to the Father. What does this mean about submission? Well, it means that submission is not a means of making some people more important than others. We're taking those people who are less important and putting them in their place. Godly submission is a gift of the Lord. It's part of the sanctification that the Holy Spirit works into his people as we grow in grace. In fact, that is why these verses are so controversial. Because in the natural person, our natural sinful proclivity is not to submit to anyone or anything. And so any verse where Paul says some people ought to submit to what the Lord says raises us up on our heels and we say, no, 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 that couldn't possibly be what he's saying. It is our sinful inclination that says, no, I don't want to bow the knee to what the Lord says. We don't want someone else telling us when or why or how we ought to do anything. When the Spirit works in his people, men and women, when the Spirit works in his people to make them more like the Savior, you know, the Savior who was in himself the very form of God, the Savior who, though he was in the form of God, emptied himself, the Savior who took on himself the form of a servant, the Savior who humbled himself into obedience, even obedience on the cross to save his people to himself. When the Spirit makes us more like him, we grow in an appreciation for submitting to the authorities that God has established. This is part of our worship. Well, that's easy for me to say from where I stand. Top of the food chain. A husband, a father, a pastor, an elder in the church. Wow. Must be easy for me to stand at the front and tell all of you women to get in line, isn't it? Unfortunately, sometimes the men in the church will take that tact and they'll do that and they'll use that and abuse it in a way. But there's really a much larger call to submission in this passage and it shows up in the last verses. 
It's the third kind of order that we see, and it's an order not just for the women in the church and not just for the men in the church, but for the whole church. Young and old, man and woman, child and adult and elder, and everyone in between. True worship calls for well-ordered authority. There should be an authority structure in the church, and God's people ought to follow it. Back at the start of this section of Paul's letter, in chapter 12, Paul gave us all a litmus test for establishing whether we are spiritual people or not spiritual people. Do you remember that? There are lots of ways we might try to say and try to discern whether we are spiritual people. Do we go to yoga? Do we do these other things? Do we meditate? Do we uh, practice mindfulness? The, The world is awash in sort of spirituality, but Paul gave us this litmus test. He said it's all up to what you believe about Jesus. Chapter 12, verse 3, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. That's the test. What do you say about Jesus? Is he the Savior? The Christ? Is he the Lord? Is he the King who directs the steps of your life? Is he the one to whom you have bowed the knee of all of your earthly existence and the knee of all of your hopes for future blessedness? Is he the Lord? Paul says this reveals an awful lot about what the Holy Spirit is doing in the lives of his people. But in chapter 14, toward the end, he gives us a corollary. It shows up in verse 37. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, here's this general category, Not just if you think you've got this particular gift, but if you think you're a spiritual person. He should acknowledge that the things I'm writing you are a command of the Lord. This is not really a separate question from the one in chapter 12. Paul's not saying that to be saved, you've got to bow the knee to Christ, and you've got to bow the knee to Paul, thank you very much. But he is saying that if Jesus is actually your Lord, if he actually directs your life and you have submitted yourself to his authority, then it will show up in a willingness to hear his word and his commands when they are given through his chosen men, the apostles. Paul never exalts himself in the church, but neither does he shy away from claiming apostolic authority. There is a structure in the church, he told us earlier in chapter 12. And he sort of left it hanging since then, and he's never come back to it. But he said God has appointed in the church first apostles, then prophets, and all the rest. And now he's bringing it full circle, and he's saying, if you think you're spiritual at all, you need to acknowledge that the Lord speaks his own commands by his word. And it is mandated unto every person in the church, pastor or layman, man or woman, that when the Lord speaks, we ought not to harden our heart against that in rebellion. And we've already seen that for all of us, submission to God's authority is not the natural inclination of our hearts. It feels like dying to ourselves, to relinquish our autonomy and say someone else can be in the driver's seat. It's a struggle very often, and it's a struggle that shows up in places you might not expect. Maybe it shows up as we read this passage about tongues and prophecy, and you think, I've never seen these things, and how does this even have anything to do with where I am and what I do in my daily life? Maybe it shows up as you read about gender roles in worship. 
And you know that if you were to walk out of here today and you were to talk to any one of your neighbors and tell them what your pastor was teaching you on a Sunday morning, they're going to look at you like you're a time traveler from the 18th century. And that's a struggle that you don't really want to engage in. You'd rather fit in with the culture and, and say, no, 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 I'm going to go with the flow and, and not listen to God's authority. And it becomes this struggle. But in these little things, we're forced to realize suddenly what the Corinthians had to realize. That when we come together and we talk about things like worship and gifts, we talk about order and decency and a thousand other Monday things that fill our time from Sunday to Thursday and every other day of the week. When we talk about the daily decisions that, that grab our desires, that there is a much deeper issue at play here in all of these things. There is a question that each of us need to ask and answer. And the question is that of who is in charge. Who is the Lord? Who will you worship? You see, we're called to well-ordered authority in the church. I don't know if you've noticed, but we've basically been professing this together uh, so far in the month of November, and you read all these words already today. So I've got you hooked. I know that this is what you believe. But we've been reading together, why are you called a Christian? What does it mean to serve the Lord, to be one of his own people? What is it to be a Christian? We say, I am a member of Christ by faith and thus am a partaker of his anointing, that I may confess his name and present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him. And that with a free and a good conscience, I may fight against sin and Satan in this life and afterwards reign with him eternally over all creatures. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be a spiritual person filled with the Holy Spirit. That we are a member of Jesus Christ and his body by faith. And by faith we partake of the anointing of his Holy Spirit. And as his Holy Spirit gives us boldness, we claim another master over our lives. We proclaim that we are one of his, and we call his name Jesus our Lord. And it happens by faith that we would bow the knee and submit, and that is a grace of the Holy Spirit. This is what he does in his people. The Spirit gives us grace to die to ourselves and to struggle for submission, to lay all of our autonomy and our authority at the foot of the cross, the Spirit works in us a joy and a thanksgiving for the Savior who humbled himself unto obedience for our sakes. He gives us a rejoicing in all the promises of life and salvation that belong to his redeemed people. He calls us his own and he makes us like himself. And it happens as we believe. It happens by the power of the Spirit. It happens as we submit. And it happens as we worship. Let's pray together and come to the table where we see this Christ, our Lord, pictured for us and sealed to all those who are his by faith. Let's pray. O gracious Lord and God, we thank you that we are not saved by the strength of our submission, but by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We thank you also that by your spirit you work in our hearts to hear and to heed your word and your command. Oh, soften the hearts of every person in this room, we pray, that we would be willing to learn from you, 
that we would be willing to follow and to hear and to respond in faith and put to death those sinful desires, whether they seem mundane things or those large, overarching, life-encompassing sins that we struggle with so much. Oh, Lord, give us the grace of submission to you and to know your authority and to well-ordered worship in all of our lives. We pray in your name. Amen.